0: hebrews chapter eleven verses twenty three to forty the forty-second talk in a series on the book of hebrews was presented by jack crabtree on june eleventh two thousand seventeen at reformation fellowship the copyright for this recording is held by jack crabtree and is being made available to you by gutenberg college gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handouts number 15 and 16. Translation, installment, 2017, numbers 3 and 4,
1: accompany this talk. Okay, we're still in Hebrews chapter 11, and the whole chapter is devoted to going through event after event, person after person, character after character, to make a, a point that for all, for throughout all of human history, From the most ancient days that we have in the Bible, there have been individuals who have believed in the promise that God made to them and have persevered without ever seeing the fulfillment of that promise. That promise was never realized, but they believed anyway. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, I'm going to argue that the promise they're talking about is basically the same promise. It's that what's in view is one and only one promise. It's a complex promise, but it's a promise of one particular reality that all of them were looking forward to in their own way, uh, from their own perspective. Uh, we've, We've gone through the people before the flood. Then we looked at Abraham and the patriarchs, and they're the promise of the land, and they're wrestling with that and various events surrounding that. And now we come to Moses and the Exodus, that's in paragraph, yeah, paragraph 70, uh, that would be 1123 in your, regu- uh, yeah, in your regular Bible. With regard to belief, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child to be notable and they were not afraid of the edict of the king. The uh, story that he's referring to, I'm, let me read that. It's brief in Exodus chapter one, um, starting with 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Puah, and he said, "When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death." But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. This is the part that he Paul is quoting here or alluding to when he said Moses when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because because they saw the child to be, and then there's a word there, a Greek word there It's the same Greek word that you'll find in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this passage. Um, The problem is deciding what exactly that word means. Um, It it tends to be a word that describes the impressiveness of a noble person, of of a person of high standing. Uh, the, The Hebrew word is simply the generic word for good in Hebrew, tov, saw that the, that the child was tov, was good. But good in what sense? That's the issue. And the Greek word is more specific. Um, I, I don't know how your English translations translate it, saw that it was a child beautiful. Okay. That, that can't be right. <laughs> I mean, what, what parent doesn't have a beautiful child? I mean, that can't be right. Uh, My my child is so beautiful. There's something about this child that's noteworthy. And uh, an an interesting clue is when Stephen, in his speech in Acts 7, is telling the story of this, he uses exactly the same word here that that Paul uses in Hebrews, from the Septuagint, but he adds, in the eyes of God, I believe is the language that he adds, something roughly like that. So, we're not talking about physical appearance. He's not beautiful to human eyes. He is something to God's eyes. There's something in God's eyes. And I would argue that the thing that makes the most sense is that they recognize that this child had a special destiny. This, this child was special. If that weren't such a spoiled term, I would have translated it special. Like, but Mr. Rogers comes haunting me out of it. Um, that Moses was special. And knowing that Moses was special, they re- and, and the kind of specialness it is, is special in the eyes of God, special in the plans and purposes and uh, destiny that God has given this child. So knowing that he had a special role to play, they in spite of the edict of the, of the Pharaoh, um, who has said, if it's a son, kill it, they didn't, uh, it was more important to them that they honor the purposes of God than that they protect their own lives from the wrath and fury of the Pharaoh, the king. So they hid the child for three months, and then when they could hide the child no longer, you know the rest of the story. They put it in the basket in the in the Nile River, and God took it from there and took uh, took care of the child from there. Okay, so Paul is pointing out the faith of the parents of Moses at this point, with regard to belief. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they, the parents, saw the child to be notable and they were not afraid of the edict of the king. Okay? Um, what we don't know is we, we know that they saw the child to be special, to be notable, to be a uh, significant child in God's purposes, but to what kind of specificity did they have about that specialness? Was it connected with the promise made to Abraham? Uh, For them? I mean, had an angel come as an angel came to Mary and told Mary what this child Jesus, what role this child Jesus was going to have? Did they get an angelic visitation that told them what role Moses was going to play and how intimately connected that role was to the promise that God had made to their father Abraham? Could be, certainly, but we have no record of that. We have no indication that that's how this got communicated. I think it would be enough if they just out of inexplicably, just absolutely inexplicably had this subjective sense that this was no ordinary child. This was a child who had a very, very special and specific destiny, and they acted on that impression that they received. Impressions can be from God. They can be created by God. And... um, if God has created it and it's in accordance with truth then it's a very real true communication that God has made to them even though it would be of no value to anybody except them because it is so highly subjective. But God can certainly work in that way. And in that case there wouldn't have been a lot of content to it. There wouldn't have been a lot of specific information about what role the child was play was going to play only that he had a very special role to play. But in any case, they took that seriously, and they acted on it. They acted on it with courage, not being intimidated by the threat of the king, the edict of the king, and they simply did what uh, what they believed to be obedient to the purposes of God. Okay, then we move on to another Now we move to Moses himself. With regard to belief, Moses, when he was grown, rejected being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, opting to share ill treatment with the people of God rather than to have the fleeting enjoyment of sin because he counted the ridicule of the anointed one as greater riches than the treasure of Egypt for he was keeping his eyes on the reward. Okay, Moses, when he was grown, when he became an adult, rejected being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, opting instead to share ill treatment with the people of God, rather than have the fleeting enjoyment of sin, as he would uh, have opportunity to as uh, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, rather than to have the fleeting enjoyment of sin, because he counted the ridicule of the anointed one as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now, that's the key. Now, what does he mean, though, the ridicule of the anointed one? The anointed one here is not Jesus. The anointed one here, I believe, is Moses. So he's considering the ridicule that he is going to be subjected to as the one anointed by God for this particular and special role that he's going to fill, he is going to be subjected to a great deal of abuse in, in seeking to be obedient to that role. Not only from the Egyptians, certainly from Pharaoh, but from his own people, the Jewish people. I mean, if you remember the story that David took us through in Exodus... Moses begins, when he first begins to take action to play a, a significant role to be the liberator of the, the people of Israel, he's not really accepted by them. You know, who do you think you are? Who, who, why, why should we give you any credence? Why should we honor you? Why should we follow you? So he, he received a lot of abuse even from the very people of God, the chosen people of God, that he was sent to free from their captivity in Egypt. That was part of the deal. Um, but he, he valued the abuse that he would receive as the anointed one even over all the riches of Egypt, of the treasuries of Egypt. That's the crux, I think, the essence of what Paul wants us to see here about the nature of this faith, this belief that a person will have that will mark them as a, as a person who's going to be saved. One, one of the important attributes of this is that the promise that God made that we are called upon to believe is something that we place a value on that surpasses the value of anything that this life has to offer us, this life that we find ourselves in has to offer us. And Paul argues Moses did that. He valued, even though it was not pleasant to play the role that God had given him to play, it was downright unpleasant at times, even though it was unpleasant, the, the, the simple bare fact that he was serving the purposes of God was in and of itself valuable enough to him that he would forego everything Egypt had to offer him as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He would forego that in order to serve the purposes of God as God had called him to do. This is one of the passages that rebukes me the most in in this whole chapter. Uh, This is incredible. It is so easy to... It reminds me that even though the Bible, when it talks about going through tribulation, testing that that our faith or our belief is tested by life circumstances, typically it's uh, persecution, tribulation is pressures of a very negative nature, Um, it's suffering, it's grief, it's tragedy, it's uh, uh, shame, mockery, contempt of the people around us, shaming from other people around us. Typically, it's negative stuff. But we can equally well be tested by positive stuff, stuff that we enjoy, stuff that we like, stuff that we're drawn to, stuff that's desirable to us. And that's the example with Moses here. The first test that he the real test that he had to overcome was his status, his power, the, the luxury that he enjoyed as a son of pharaoh 's daughter. He had to overcome that, and what do I mean by overcome that? well, you know all too often when we get a taste of the things that this life has to offer wealth and possessions, material possessions and honor for perhaps, praise from other people, uh, positions of power that we might enjoy. We get a taste for that. And what is our focus? Our focus is to leverage what we've got for more of the same. I want more power. I want more possessions. I want more comfort. I want more, 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 because I like what I've been given. And that we're going to see later. That's uh, that's partly what he has in mind is the sin that so easily trips us up on this journey and we fall flat on our face and we don't make it to the end because uh, there is a sin that trips us up. Well, one, one form that that sin takes, I think, a very seductive and very powerful form is the, uh, our, our, is the comfort and the pleasures and the delights and the possessions that we can have in this world. Well, Moses was stuck right dab in the middle of that and given basically anything anybody could want. And then he was called by God, but what I've called you to is to be a liberator of my people. I have anointed you to that task. That's what I want you to focus on. But you can't focus on that without being distracted from, from getting and enjoying more of what Egypt has to offer. You can't do both, and it's a matter of priorities. Now, notice here, he did not renounce what he had. You know, This is not a Francis of Assisi story where, you, where he sold everything he got and walked away from it because it was unspiritual for him to be as wealthy and as powerful as he was. He didn't ever renounce it, not in so many ways words. He had to run for his life away from it, but that's a different story. He didn't, he didn't voluntarily renounce it. But, so it was a matter of priorities for him. It's okay to be rich, as so many of the people of God in chapter 11 are. It's okay for God to have blessed us with material possessions and that kind of thing. That, that's not contrary to belief. But what is contrary to belief is when we allow that to stand in the way of us doing what God has called us to do to accomplish his purposes in the way that he wants us to contribute to his purposes. If we say no to that in order to have what we can have, then, then we are failing in a way that Moses did not fail. To put it another way, if you remember the parable that Jesus told of the, the different kinds of soil, and the, the word of God would land on one soil where weeds would grow up, and when the weeds would grow up and choke out the, the, the word of God, the effects of the word of God, the effects of belief in the word of God in a person's life are choked out by something else, and Paul says it's the, it's the concerns of this world. So, uh, all of us know, I'm sure, many of people where we have seen the trajectory of their life and they get a little bit of success and in worldly terms, they get some wealth, they get some, some possessions, they, um, they get some power, they get some honor, they get some glory and recognition, they get some status and standing of some kind and it becomes so seductive that the the good news of the word of god ceases to be very interesting to them by comparison and they give themselves over to what the world has to offer rather than stay invested in what god's promise has to offer and they die i mean not not just biologically but they die spiritually And unless there's another resurrection of life in them, uh, they have sealed their fate in a very unfortunate direction. Well, that's the test that Moses passed. He was not seduced by the by the riches of the treasures of Egypt. And as he puts it here, he was keeping his eyes on the reward. That that's what's interesting. I mean, you can keep your eyes on the, the riches of the treasure, treasures of Egypt, but from Moses' perspective, that's not where the real reward lies. That's not worth it compared to... So what did he see? What did Moses know? What did Moses believe that we don't? He believed that whatever it is that God had to offer him at the other end of his journey was well worth Uh, staying the course and suffering whatever he needed to suffer and enduring whatever he needed to endure in order to lay hold of that reward that God was going to grant him one day. Next one, with regard to belief, he left Egypt not fearing the fury of the king. Indeed, he remained firm um, in, and I think the firmness that we're talking about is in his commitment to do just as God had instructed him. Indeed, he remained firm as one who has seen the invisible. And I, I think it's not at all clear from the Greek what exactly this invisible is. But I think we're talking about as one who has seen the invisible outcome. That what he's contrasting it, okay, first of all, what is he talking about? He's not talking about him leaving Egypt for Midian. Remember the story, he's, he ends up uh, killing an Egyptian guard who is abusing uh, Hebrew, and he thinks nobody saw it, but when he's breaking up a dispute between two Hebrews the next day, the, the rastier of the two Hebrews... Throws back at him. What are you going to do? Kill me like you did the Egyptian guard yesterday. So he realizes the cat is out of the bag and that he is now in danger. And he does, out of fear, I would argue, leave Egypt for Midian at that point. And he spends 40 years, however long that is. He spends 40 years. uh, Isn't that right? Yeah. Um, Until God calls him back and, it, and basically it's time then and God says, okay Moses, I set you apart for a task, let's, be, let's get on with it and he brings him back to Egypt to to do what he's to do. The leaving Egypt that he's talking about here, I think, is when he's leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and leaving Egypt um, at, at the Passover, the, the night of Passover and so on. Um, it says not fearing the fury of the king, as David was taking us through that Exodus account, if you'll remember, um, Moses has been going to Pharaoh and saying, no, I'm giving, giving you all these signs. And each time, Pharaoh hardens his heart and doesn't respond appropriately as, as he ought to. And when we get to number nine, at the end of nine, remember he's furious. He says, if I see you again, I will kill you. That's the fury, I think, that Paul's talking about here. Um, well, I imagine, depending upon how intimidating a pharaoh is, I imagine that would be pretty intimidating. So on the one hand, you have pharaoh saying, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. And you have God saying, okay, we got still got some things to do here, Moses. Here's the instructions. Here's what I want you to um, to have the, the people... That, the people of Israel, to do? Are you going to continue to lead them in keeping with my instructions, or have we ticked the Pharaoh off too much and uh, we need to back off now? Well, in spite of the fury of the king, he kept right on following God's instructions, remaining firm in his commitment to do so. Why, he says, as one who has seen the invisible, now, I think, I think the contrast between visible and invisible that he has in mind here is, um, is how this is all going to turn out. You can be courageous if you know you're going to be okay. If you have the guarantee that God is going to protect you, uh, keep you safe, make you successful in your endeavor and so on, there, there's a basis for courage there. I don't have anything to worry about because I know how this is going to turn out. But if you don't know how it's going to turn out, how does it look like it's going to turn out? There's Pharaoh and all of his horses and chariots and soldiers and so on and so forth. We've got a few sheep and cattle. (laughs) I mean, if it comes down to a military uh, conflict, there's no contest. Pharaoh can command whatever he wants to command, and people are going to obey him. Uh, are, from, from all things visible, this looks crazy. This looks like a crazy thing to do, to be telling him to go into the court one more time, let him see me one more time, and, and tell him that every firstborn in his kingdom is going to die and so forth. That just seems crazy. Because what if it doesn't happen? What if, what if it doesn't take place? But Moses acts like one who sees what the rest of us don't see. He actually sees the outcome. Well, how can he see the outcome? Because he believes the God who has declared enough of his purposes to Moses that he knows it's going to be successful. He just needs to follow God's instructions and it will all work out okay. And we know the story that it does. Now he basically unpacks what he has spoken of generally in 72. 72, indeed he remained firm as one who is seeing the invisible so he left Egypt not fearing the king. Well, what did it mean to leave Egypt? Well, for one... With regard to belief, he performed the Passover feast and the sprinkling of the blood to the end that the destroyer would not touch their firstborn. And with regard to belief, in 74, they passed through the Red Sea as if on dry land. When the Egyptians made the attempt to cross over it, they drowned. So throughout the whole Exodus event, Moses, following the instructions of God, simply remained firm to do what God had told Israel to do and to lead Israel in the way he had had told Moses to lead them. Um, And lo and behold, they were successful at the Passover event itself. It happened just as God said it would. And when it looked like they were going to be destroyed, when they were pinned between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, uh, lo and behold, God saved them let them walk across on dry land and drown the Egyptians in their attempt to follow. Now we move on from the Exodus to the um, entering into the land. With regard to belief, the walls of Jericho collapsed after they had been marched around for seven days. This is now the belief of both Joshua and the people of Israel, secondarily, the people of Israel who obeyed Joshua's commandments. They did this bizarre thing in obedience to God's commandments and lo and behold, uh, the walls collapsed. Now, notice the contrast here between Joshua and Abraham. Joshua did not lead the people into the land and live as nomads in the land as their father Abraham had. Abraham, earlier in the chapter, was commended for being a nomad in the land because he was looking for a different land, not the land that was there, but the land that God was going to give them, that had a city whose architect and builder was God. Joshua and the people of Israel are taking the land. Now they are taking it. By force, militarily, they're killing people to take over their houses, their cities, their vineyards, their cisterns, and so on. Isn't that lacking the very faith that he commended Abraham for earlier? Well, no, it's not. Because the difference between Joshua and Abraham is he never commanded Abraham to take the land, but he did command Joshua to take the land. He's the one that instructed him to take Jericho and to take it in exactly this way by marching around the city and banging drums and lanterns and stuff like that. And then then finally, with regard to belief, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with the disbelieving because she had received the spies in peace. Okay, what's the faith here? The only thing Rahab knows is what she's heard about. She's heard stories. She's heard um, witnesses tell of what has been transpiring uh, in the region as God is leading this people group out of Egypt and, and defeating enemy after enemy after enemy, seeing miraculous deliverance from uh, from their enemies by their God. And simply on the basis of those reports, she didn't see it with her own eyes, as far as we know. She, didn't, she wasn't an eyewitness to any of this stuff, but she, based on credible accounts that she had heard, she makes the decision, the God of Israel is the God I want to be aligned with. All the other gods of the land of Canaan are absolutely nothing and are no match for the God of this people. So I want to be aligned with that God. I want to serve that God, and I want whatever blessing that God is handing out and giving out, that's what I want. I want my life to be connected with that God. The first time she gets an opportunity to serve that God is by welcoming and protecting the people of that God, the spies that were sent into Jericho. And when she encounters them, she um, houses them and hides them and helps them escape the city. Why? Because she wants to serve the God of them, to serve their God. And as a consequent, she was spared. And as you probably well know, she actually literally, by marrying into the people of Israel, she becomes um, a great, 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 however many times, grandmother of Jesus, of Jesus the Messiah. Okay, let me stop there for any comments or questions on any of the Moses Exodus stuff.
2: You've touched on it before about the modern church's um, idea of Christ being in the Old Testament. I mean, but where my translation actually says, in, tw- in verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value. Why would they translate that when we know good and well that Moses did not know Christ? I mean, he was looking kind of forward to a messiah, but that wasn't even really clear yet until later with David and the prophets and stuff.
1: Well, there's, in certain traditions, there's a long tradition of what they call typology. Mm-hmm. And um, where, I mean, early on in my Bible teaching career, I set out to try to develop a theory of typology to try to defend the practice as being, as being an. A right practice. And I got pretty far down the road, but, but over time, the more I studied my Bible, the more I realized, but that's not what's going on. Um, and by, by typology, I mean you go back to the Old Testament and you see an event or a person or an aspect of an event, and you say, oh, that's there to point forward to either Jesus himself or something about Jesus or something connected to Jesus in the New Testament. And then we called that a type. One of them I remember reading about was Rahab, when she lets the spies down the city wall out of her window, it's with a scarlet rope. Obviously, that's the blood of Jesus. So they're being saved by the blood of Jesus. What we do is we we find a way of describing the event in the Old Testament that has where the verb the verbiage that you use to describe it would be usable to describe what's happening in in Jesus and the New Testament, but it's merely a verbal resemblance. And the resem I mean, if we if we look too closely at it all the analogies break down. There's no real analogy. It's an entirely different sort of event. But if we just just describe it in the right kind of way with the right kind of words, then we can take our description over here to Jesus and what he did and say, look, I could use that description to describe Jesus. There must be a connection. Mm -hmm. And the purpose must be that God was putting that there in order to anticipate this. Mm -hmm. The real value that that had for I think Bible teachers who were prim, who were really were attracted and theologians who were attracted to it and really promoted it was not exegetical or theological; it was apologetic. And what I mean by that is, it was useful for the purposes of, in their mind, proving the supernatural nature of the Bible. And I mean, because you. Cause you eventually they'd always get around to saying, how can this book not be inspired when you see all the ways that the Old Testament, all the types in the Old Testament of Christ in the New Testament? How can it not be inspired? Well, the problem is, if you're critical, if you don't already believe the, the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible and so on and so forth, and you look at all these examples of the types in the Old Testament anticipating the New Testament, you look at that and go, you're just making that up. (laughs) I mean, why should I believe the Bible is inspired because you, with your creative ingenuity, have, have created a connection that otherwise wouldn't even exist there? Why should that be impressive to me? But for a young person like me who already believes in the inspiration of the Bible and the truth of of what the Bible taught, that was very compelling to me at, at a certain point in time.
2: Well, but. I can I can see where people would make Moses a type of Christ, and even the Passover, you know, looking forward to Christ's death. But why they would say that Moses believed in Christ when he hasn't even been mentioned yet, other than maybe to Eve in her seed. You know, none of this is... We haven't had the prophets, we haven't had any of these people yet that are talking about the suffering servant or any of that. So the idea that Moses would, for the sake of Christ.
1: Yeah, I think it's just because we're looking at it with a mindset that wants to and expects to see Christ anywhere and everywhere yeah. that we can. Yeah. And so what could be more, what could be more suggestive of Christ than the word Messiah, anointed one? So,
2: Okay, so that's that, you mentioned the Anointed One, and that's yeah, the it's Anointed, anointed one, one that they're
1: yeah, and that's the word that we get Messiah from Mashiach. Okay, and so the ridicule of the Mashiach. Well, we only know one Mashiach, right? Okay. Well, no, <laughs> there's different Mashiachs. Cyrus was a Mashiach. Um, the the Persian king is called God's Anointed One at one point. So. There are different ways to be a Mashiach, to be an anointed one by God. And I would argue that Moses is one way to be an anointed one by God, a Mashiach. Okay. But, but if we don't think that carefully about it, we're just so taken by the word Messiah there that, well, that's mm-hmm. got to be Jesus. And, we're not, and we don't really stop to say, okay, but what does that mean here? I mean, what could he possibly be saying? How is Moses doing what he's doing because he values the ridicule of Jesus? What would that even mean exactly? Yeah. But but you know, we don't always we're not always careful to insist that the statements in the Bible make sense. Yeah. We simply abst- we just kind of tear things out of them and run with them. You
2: know? So this particular verse. I don't have your translation in front of me. But it would kind of be like, for the sake of being God, for the sake of living out God's purposes for me, it would be kind of what he was saying.
1: Yes. For the the
2: sake of being the person God has called me to be.
1: Yeah, that's that's what he valued over all the treasures of Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Jan, I thought your question was really very clear and, and purposeful. And Jack gave us a long answer. Are you satisfied? Yeah, I am too. But I, Jack, I think she had to drag it out of you. Um, I wanted Please, Jan.
2: So just seeing that it's for the sake of being who God has called me to be is kind of what he's saying rather right. than the way it's translated. Right. Could you read that verse out of your translation again?
1: Because he counted the ridicule of the anointed one as greater riches than the, than the treasures of Egypt. Okay. Right. I mean, what if, what if... He could have used profit and, and meant the same thing. He counted the ridicule of the prophet as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And what we're talking about is him being ridiculed as God's prophet. I could paraphrase it. He counted the ridicule he would get being the anointed one greater riches than the treasures of Egypt.
3: And he uses uh, the to use the term Messiah, the anointed one before apparently that custom had come into being because we, we see David being anointed and we see uh, who else we see in the Old Testament we see people being anointed but to the author it would mean appointed or chosen right because the anointing is just this ceremony that announces right. it to everybody in the crowd right um,
2: Moses,
3: the first
1: anointed one? Well, I doubt it. Um, I mean, I I think they're taking the the practice of anointing probably from the broader, wider culture. Uh, Immediately in the law, we have anointings, right? Isn't uh, the high priest anointed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, shortly after that, we're going to start getting a bunch of anointings that are... Specifically, explicitly commanded and instructed by God, I—I um, I don't know. I mean,
3: so it would be the author of Hebrews' use of the term, meaning, uh, not that we have anything in the story where we see Moses being anointed. Oh, yeah. Okay. But it's obvious that God chose him and yeah. appointed him and said, i got work for you to do, and it's not for someone else to do, it's for you to do, yeah. and it's your work, so go do it. Yeah,
1: it, it may very well be that to call him an anointed one is kind of anachronistic. Mm, right. you, you, in retrospect, you're saying if anointing were going on, he would be right. the anointed one. That, yeah, the point is not that he was ritually anointed. The point is he was the kind of person who gets anointed because he's the chosen and selected one of God for this particular task.
3: And the, and the trials and tribulations of being that person started when the Hebrew slaves said, who, put, who made you a king exactly. over us? Yeah, Even exactly. they didn't want him. They didn't want to go, I mean, you're going to wreck the economy. And, you know, you're going to start a war. And who made you the boss? Right. And it started from day one. You can't make Egypt great again. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah.
4: Is that phrase the repro? Mine says the reproach of Christ is, and what you've translated the reproach of the Anointed One. Um, is that a genitive construction in the Greek?
1: Uh, I believe so. I, I don't have my Greek in front of me, but I believe so. Yeah.
4: Um, it strikes me that that there would be a way to understand that as Christ, like Jesus, without having to do any yeah. typology, because. You could say the same kind of reproach that Jesus had to go through because he was God's chosen one is the same kind of reproach that Moses had to go to. And interestingly, also happens to be the same kind of reproach that his readers are facing.
1: Yeah, I thought about that Mm -hmm. uh, because that would work, um, that he valued the same kind of treatment that later the Christ would would receive. The problem is, you could have said that about all these people, and he doesn't. So, I think to see the point that he's making is, I mean, even if he said that, you'd have to then come around to say, well, why was, why did Jesus receive the reproach that he did, and compare that to why Moses received the reproach that he did, and so on. They're kind of different. Um, Moses is. Why is he receiving that? Because God has appointed him to a certain task and he's carrying out that task and the people are chafing under that. Which is a little different than Jesus because Jesus would have been hated just because of who he was, period. Just the quality of his being. He's just, he's God. And people who hate God is going to hate the the Messiah, Jesus, as well. So they're not exactly parallel. Um, and since it makes a ton of sense to think of Moses as an anointed one, that just made more sense to me than the other. But you could, yeah, you, you could kind of make the case that he, the kind of treatment that Jesus got, he valued that. He valued being the kind of person who would be persecuted just as Jesus was persecuted. And yeah, that, that, that may, Jen, be yeah. a partial answer to your question. That probably is how some people are thinking about that
4: it seems to kind of come to the same thing that you're suggesting. Yeah. The question for me is, yeah, how would the author be thinking about that term? Would they would they actually is it anachronistic to see them as applying it to Moses or or just, you know, Moses wasn't anointed in the text or something. So how would they be thinking about that? That's kind of my mm-hmm. uh issue with with that, but I think it does come to the same mm-hmm. thing. Thank you.
1: But remember, Cyrus never would have been literally anointed either.
4: But God calls him my anointed. Mm -hmm. God calls him my anointed. Exactly. And Moses is never, is he ever called that?
1: Uh, Not to my knowledge.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quick question. Uh, When does the term uh, uh, anointed one start becoming referred to as Jesus? Is that the New Testament? The prophets like Isaiah, or is it later than Isaiah?
1: That, that's complicated. The word anointed one is applied, it, it, it comes up in Psalm 2, immediately upon the coronation of Solomon. He's, he's the anointed one. Um, and he's anoint, the anointed one who is the son of God. So the Son of God, almost from the get-go, immediately, is referred to quite frequently as the Anointed One. Now, when you get to Jesus, Jesus is called the Anointed One because he is the Monogenes, Son of God, the unique Son of God. Not the Son of God that has ruled over Israel in the Davidic throne for all those years, but the one who's going to rule forever. In a unique kind of way, so then it gets applied to Jesus. But am I an- am I answering your question or? Uh,
5: yes and no. What I was kind of getting at was the Messiah portion. But
1: well, M- Messiah just means
5: Anointed One, or was Messiah being referred to? Is Jesus was that something that or? Uh, Bible interpretation uh, kind of applied onto?
1: Well, let me answer it this way. The way Christian culture tends to view it is Messiah is a title that uniquely belongs to Jesus. So if you're going to refer to the Messiah, you have to necessarily be referring to Jesus. Well, that's simply a misinterpretation of the Bible and biblical history. David was the Messiah, Solomon was. The Messiah, Rehoboam was the Messiah. Every Davidic king who ruled from then on was the Messiah as well. Jesus stands out not because he's the Messiah and other people are not the Messiah. He stands out because he's what John calls the unique Messiah, the one of a kind Messiah, the monogenese Messiah. And as the one of a kind, unique Messiah. He, he is the one that God always had in view when he made his covenant with David from the get-go, from, with King David from the get-go, when he promised him that his throne would endure forever. How was that going to happen? Through a long dynasty of mortal kings who died off and in succession they were always sons of David? No. There was going to come an individual who literally as an individual would reign forever. And that was Jesus, and he was unique in that regard. There was no other Messiah like him before, nor will there ever be one after him.
5: Okay, I think that answers my question and more.
1: Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm making a habit of that.
5: I'll just make the comment, if one we're interested in and asking the question, in the Old Testament, does the word Messiah ever refer specifically to that coming Hmm. king who's going to be in the line of David? And we know we have prophecies in the Old Testament that are about that, but my reading so far would be that the word Mashiach wasn't actually ever used in any prophecy in the Old Testament to say someday the Messiah with a capital M is going to come, Hmm. that it was really in the time, the intertestamental period, I think, that Hmm. the word Messiah started to be used to refer to that one coming king. So I don't know if that's related to Michael's question, but I don't think in the Old Testament. There are a couple places you could say, well, maybe it is, but I think there aren't.
1: Anything else? Well, let me just quickly go over these... Uh, next couple of paragraphs. And, uh, yeah. and then the last, the last sentence in this I want to take some time on because it's pretty significant. But Now he ends this long litany with, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I were to give a full account of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and also of Samuel and the prophets.
5: Okay.
1: These men, in keeping with their belief... Subdued kingdoms, brought about righteousness, obtained promises, closed the mouths of lions, extinguished the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were rendered strong, became mighty in battle, turned away the armies of foreigners. Women welcomed their dead back by means of resurrection. Now others were tortured, not accepting their freedom, so that they might meet with a better resurrection. And others underwent an ordeal of mockings and scourgings, even more of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tried, they died by murder with a sword, they traveled about in sheepskins in the height of goats, being destitute, troubled, abused. These men of whom the world was not worthy wandered about in the wilderness even in the mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, even though they had been commended by their belief, did not obtain the promise because God had foreseen something that was better for us, namely that they would not realize the final fulfillment of the promise without us. Okay, I'm not going to take the time. I mean, each of those persons he mentions is a whole story in and of itself. He's basically inviting us to go read and study and pay attention to the whole history of God's dealing with Israel. And he's saying, I've just, I've just touched the tip of the iceberg. We could go deeper. We could talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and the prophets and on and on and on. But, they, but then he talks about them falling into basically two categories. There are these people who, because of their belief... What they experienced was incredible supernatural victory. Victory that shouldn't they shouldn't have had and wouldn't have had, couldn't have had, apart from the power of God going to work on their behalf. So you have victory because of their belief. And then you have all these people who got murdered, sought into... Uh, sought into... sought <laughs> into made outcasts, having to escape, flee, live as exiles in the wilderness, and live very impoverished lives because of their belief. So both happened. Uh, It's not, I mean, the idea that is current and popular in Christian culture, that by belief, we become victorious. By belief, we get prosperity and abundance and power, and so on. Paul is reminding us, by belief, yeah, you can get that. And also, by belief, you get grief and sorrow and deprivation and suffering and persecution and death and torture and all kinds of stuff like that. Belief comes in two flavors. And you have to remember that... that there's no guarantee which way it, it's going to go in, in any person's life. His readers are receiving the bitter flavor of belief, that because of their, because of their belief, they're being persecuted. And he's, he's pointing out that you're in good company. I mean, half the people that we can look at and talk about in the, the history of the Old Testament are, uh, are, have a bitter experience because of their belief. But all of them, and I, we'll, we'll take this up next week, but all these, even though they had been commended by their belief, they did not obtain the promise because God had foreseen something that was better for us, namely that they would not realize the final fulfillment of the promise without us. We need to unpack that. I mean, that, that's theologically loaded because in order to, for him to make the claim that he's making, he has a fundamentally different view of reality from Christian culture today. In in Christian culture, we we believe that reality exists on two planes of existence. I come into this world on this plane of existence. I'm born into this earth. I die, and I go to heaven. And I live on an entirely different plane of existence, but they exist in parallel. And given our model, there's no reason they couldn't exist in parallel for eternity. Human race populates this earth, keeps making new human beings. Some of them become uh, believers who go to the kingdom of God. When they die, they go to the kingdom of God in that other plane of existence, and that's where their promise is fulfilled. Well, if that's the case, how come Abraham ain't there? The point he's making is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all these people, they died never having obtained the promise. Christian culture says it's in dying is how you obtain the promise. Is you die in order to go on to get the, the promise that God has in mind for you, eternal life, you're given eternal life by dying. He says they died and they never obtained the promise. And how is he thinking of obtaining the promise, not the same way we are, and so I, w- I want to look at that. We need to look at that. And just, just to, in case I forget next week to mention this, notice early. Notice early on there he says, in this would be 35, 36, Others were tortured, not accepting their freedom, so that they might meet with a better resurrection. I'd never given any thought to that before. What do you mean? So that they might meet with a better resurrection? Um, it seems to me to clearly imply that there that there are two resurrections, and, and the way you would the way you might frame it, for example, to follow the book of the end of Revelation, a, a first resurrection and a second resurrection. There's one resurrection that's a resurrection to blessing and reward, immortality and eternal life. But there's another resurrection that's a resurrection to judgment, uh, to being uh, having your life reviewed by God and evaluated by God, and I think sentenced accordingly. Well, which kind of resurrection do we want? Do we want the resurrection to immortality and life and blessing, or the resurrection to judgment and condemnation. Enduring torture and not accepting our freedom by betraying our God and betraying uh, God's promise to us, we are, we are we're going to meet with a better resurrection one day, the resurrection to immortality and life, rather than condemnation and judgment. And part of what that suggests is we, we get faked out. We think of resurrection as as meaning what happened to Jesus. Well, he was resurrected, but he was like more than resurrected. <laughs> he came back out of the grave, but then he was also transformed and given immortality and eternal life. We have all kinds of examples in the in the Bible of people who experienced a resurrection without entering into immortality. He mentioned two of them in this passage. Women receive back their children by, through resurrection. The widow that Elijah uh, brought her son back from the dead and another woman who, Elisha, brought her son back from the dead. Well, they didn't enter into eternal life. They, didn't, they weren't transformed into immortal beings like Jesus was. They just came back into this existence. The grave did not hold them They came back out of the grave and continued on. Lazarus was like that in the New Testament. So you have many examples of resurrection uh, in the the Bible that is not this ultimate, final entering into your promised reward. Jesus and Jesus alone is the person who's experienced that. In In the next chapter, he's going to call Jesus the leader and finisher of, of this belief. And what does he have in mind? As the finisher of it, he's the only one we know yet who has finished the race and has received his reward already. No one else has. The rest of us are waiting until God grants us our reward. And we'll, we'll see next week how that's connected with his comment. God had a better plan. He didn't give it to Abraham He's making Abraham lie in the grave and wait for it because if he had given it to him earlier, we wouldn't have received it. We have to see why that makes any sense, and I'll I'll try to explore that next week.